0: On this episode of the Medusa Metacast, Philosophy Defined, let's dive in. I figure that the best place to start with contributions to this website was to offer some minor elaboration on how I define philosophy and why I prefer to define it in this manner. Rather than bore you with the origins of the word—it's from the Greek word philosophia, meaning love of wisdom—I'm so rebellious that I even defy myself—regale you with stories about some of its well-known progenitors, or attempt to instill a sense of awe in you by listing a plethora of philosophical quotes in the hopes of gleaning some amount of credibility by proxy, I will put it simply. Philosophy is thinking as an activity— there are far more robust definitions on offer, and ones which are certainly more eloquent, but they don't compete with the elegance of the one I've provided, at least in this context. The naturally skeptical among you may already be unhappy with the definition I provided, ready to challenge not only its potential utility, but even the basis upon which it was formulated. These are fair points, and one that I'd like to address immediately. I bet you didn't think you'd be getting into it so soon let's clarify something that I hope you'd agree is uncontroversial. Definitions are descriptive, not prescriptive. What I mean by this is that definitions are descriptions of how words are being used, not prescriptions of what words mean. Admittedly, a discussion could be had at this point regarding whether or not this is a true or fair distinction, and perhaps I will write about that in the future because there is certainly something there. But for now please allow me to elaborate on my point. Dictionaries had to first be compiled, and this was done through observing people communicating with established words, typically having already been compiled in lexicons, and then recording their meanings. The meaning, however, in this instance, is not one that illustrates truth, it is one that conveys information. Language has never conveyed truth, nor was it ever designed to do such a thing. At a time when words could be formulated, Our ancestors had to develop mechanisms to negotiate their intended meaning by having the initiators of the exchange correlate a sound with some form of reference, whether it be by pointing at something, moving a body or limb in a specific manner, or to scrawl a depiction of something on a suitable surface. Over time, language generally becomes more sophisticated, and the amount of information a single word can convey becomes highly saturated. This is useful because it makes our ability to communicate far more efficient and it provides individuals the ability to express themselves, and that is essentially the crux. Language is a tool that we developed to facilitate the conveyance of information. A wonderful tool language may be, it certainly doesn't convey truth automatically by virtue of there being information present. There is no recorded historical event of a book containing words and their definitions being handed down to a person by a deity then that dictated which words would constitute which languages and how they are to be used. We know this, and we can see it by how many words have numerous definitions, that is, more than one piece of information that they can convey given the context, the time period, or the part of the world where it is being used. New words are also added all the time, a demonstration of the fluidity of this tool, and its propensity for innovation. For clarity's sake, here is a simple sample of the argument I am making in a formal logic format, using the claims I am making, also known as premises, and the conclusion that I am arguing logically follows. It may be hard to visualize this, because now this is an audio recording, but if you go to my website at angulosphilosophy.com, you can see it under the actual discourse article, Philosophy Defined. The first premise would be that human languages are methods of conveying information. The second would be that one way of conveying information is with words. The third would be the information that is being conveyed with words is negotiated over time between two parties. The fourth premise would be that parties who observe linguistic exchanges sometimes record this information. The fifth one would be when this information is recorded and then compiled, the body of work is called a dictionary. Therefore, my conclusion being, the sixth point, a dictionary is a book that contains the recorded observations of one or more authors of what the negotiated meanings of words appear to be. This is a cogent argument, but that doesn't make it necessarily true. In another episode, I will elaborate on parsing between facts and truth, because they aren't the same thing. For now, though, I will make two more comments on definitions and then move on to philosophy as an activity. First, I used the words appear to be at the end of my conclusion, because I felt it worthwhile to highlight that observations done by compilers of dictionaries aren't necessarily corroborated with other groups of compilers, and they are almost never verified for accuracy with the people using the words. I'm not insinuating this would be practical, it's just something to consider, that the verification process of defining a word isn't the same as a conclusion that is reached by a published and peer-reviewed scientific paper, for example, of which many aren't above possible reproach either. Lastly, and this is perhaps the most salient point, this means that how we choose to recognize definitions is a blessing for the empathetic and cooperative, and a weapon for the tyrannical and ideological. If you and I are having a conversation, and our priorities are to understand one another and see the potential diversity of our viewpoints, we will actively try to ensure that we aren't being misleading, and strive to clarify our meaning when we seem to disagree, just to verify that it is in fact a disagreement and not a misunderstanding. Disagreements are fine. In fact, I start to become mildly suspicious when everyone in the same group is on the same page but I think we've all had our fair share of otherwise avoidable disagreements and even highly volatile arguments that occurred because someone said a word or a series of words that was interpreted in a way other than intended. This happens, but a charitable person that appreciates the dynamic use of language can lead to these misunderstandings will seek to reconcile. They will not seek to needlessly make a potential ally into an opponent. On the other hand, If you and I are having a conversation and we have misaligned priorities, for instance, if one of us seeks to undermine or dominate the other, a very useful strategy is to insist on the meanings of words, despite the fact that we know that this would be a logical fallacy. No one has time for logic when we're trying to pick a fight or destroy an opponent. And this is exactly why the desire to negotiate the meaning of certain words so that we can find a point of mutual reference is fastidiously dispensed with when an agenda is lurking beneath the surface. Effective communication occurs when two or more people understand that the mechanism of communication is simply a tool. The important part is the intention and the content of the message. Unless a compelling and reasonable justification is provided, never trust someone who insists or demands that a word be defined a certain way. They aren't trying to speak with you. They're trying to beat you. Moving forward, we can all try our best to manage the fervor with which our friends point to a dictionary entry and say, See? That's what the word means. I told you. Because that isn't really the point. If we both agree that it makes sense for a word to mean something particular, then fine. But if one takes issue with it for any number of reasons, you can engage in the negotiation of what the word could or should mean, and then continue your conversation. After all, no one individual is more privileged than another to dictate how words are to be defined, and you are equally positioned to define words as anyone else. The hard part will be negotiating your meaning in the minds of others— and that's the rub. A note worth mentioning I am not implying that nothing is without structure, ready or to be built by anybody, or that a discourse can be constructed by anyone and be equally valid or coherent. I am simply offering a consideration for a small group of people to use as a strategy for efficacy in communication. My definition of philosophy as thinking as an activity is a deliberate simplification as philosophy is a word used to describe many things, but I don't believe mine to be myopic. A useful way to decide how to make things clear and distinct in our minds, not in a Cartesian way, is to first compare one concept to another to see their similarities, which is a perfunctory human way of thinking, but then also to notice their differences— the former being easier than the latter, because not only does it require less knowledge of a subject to find glaring similarities between two things rather than hidden distinctions, but our brains are also wired algorithmically to see patterns in things for reference in classifying them as either known and good or bad, or unknown and potentially worth investigating. Essentially, it takes more effort. A more straightforward way of describing this approach is, See how something is like another thing, and see how it is unalike. Do this with enough things, ideas, or objects, or otherwise, and you'll begin to draw meaningful conclusions about the nature of what is being examined. There is an infinite number of ways of doing comparisons like this, because you can conceivably compare any two things in the pursuit of clarity, even if they don't immediately seem purposeful. You could begin to examine the differences between up and down, left and right red and blue, opaque and transparent, past and present, that one's a little trickier than it probably seems, or how a dog and a cat are different. Currently, all of the people in the dog camp have already stated internally or out loud that's easy, dogs and cats are different in the way that dogs are better. Screw cats! And the people in the cat camp have thought the contrary. Personally, I really enjoy the company of all animals, so I'm an alley on both sides, so please don't allow your pet affinity to inform the degree to which you'd be willing to continue listening. I mean, unless there was a pet that like could transform between a dog and a cat... Oh that would rule like like you could like snap your fingers and change the breed to whatever you want or like if it's snowing outside you could change your your dog cat into like a feline so that it could use the litter box or if like if like you start dating someone and they're allergic to one of them you can change it to the other and then maybe it could get special powers and start talking and then you could get your own sitcom except it wouldn't be fake you would it would be like a real talking magic dog cat or, or like so it's more like a reality sitcom Oh, Okay. Whew. I got that out of my system. That would be sick, though. What if we change things up a bit? What if we try to examine the differences between a dog and a toaster? Certainly, this is something you could do. I'll bite you might not find it particularly useful when making pet ownership decisions. What about a dog in the American Civil War? What about a dog in classical mechanics? What about a dog and a 1974 Ford Pinto with mechanical wings that allow it to fly? What about a dog and an idea? I might be pushing it with the last one, but these are all possible comparisons that may result in some form of coherent, meaningful conclusions about what might be distinct about one or both of the phenomena. I have chosen this definition of philosophy because I concluded after comparing it to many other things that it was useful to do so for two reasons. It is clear about being something you engage in, and it is distinct from other areas of study in a way that makes it far more accessible. Additionally, the conclusion I've reached also appears to be true, and not just something I like, although I do like it. What I mean when I say that philosophy is an activity you engage in is that simply assessing philosophy within its own realm of study or inquiry causes you to be engaged with the study itself. Thinking about an idea or an object isn't doing philosophy. We are able to think of many things without giving any consideration about which strings may be attached. Thinking about a pizza is having a thought, and a delightful one at that. But thinking about why you're thinking about a pizza is the beginning of wearing your philosophy hat as soon as you consider one of the strings attached to an idea, you can start to examine how many strings you can find, how long the strings are, what else are they connected to, what sort of sound do they make when you strum them, and what has tethered these things together, and for what purpose, if any at all. Wilfred Stalker Sellers, a recognized and respected American philosopher, produced one of my favorite ways of describing the aim of philosophy, and he begins a paper of his Titled Philosophy in the Scientific Image of Man in the following way. Quote, the aim of philosophy, abstractly formulated, is to understand how things in the broadest possible sense of the term hang together in the broadest possible sense of the term. End quote. To some people, this doesn't seem helpful at all, and I can certainly appreciate that. Abstractions are a realm within which we don't often find ourselves in modern times. I, on the other hand, salivate from reading the words hang together due to the simultaneously cohesive and messy imagery it conjures in my mind. A question may have entered your mind, such as, so let me get this straight. Philosophy is just trying to figure out how things connect, if they do at all. And my answer is precisely. Essentially, everyone is a philosopher. Well, they're at least wearing an invisible hat with the word philosopher written on it when they're actively thinking about how things hang together. This is different, you may have noticed, than learning about a subject and then committing it to memory. One of my key frustrations taking philosophy courses in university was that almost none of them were philosophy courses. They were history courses about philosophers and their ideas. We read the material, committed it to memory... And then wrote essays explaining what we had learned. This isn't philosophy, and we know it can't be, because if we replace the subject matter here with any other material and maintain the formula, you have virtually every curriculum in modern education, at least the ones in the humanities and social sciences. This would constitute learning about philosophy. It isn't doing philosophy, much in the same way that reading a recipe is learning about how to cook something. It isn't cooking. I'm not critical of the formula. Quite the contrary. Learning about philosophy would likely aid someone in doing philosophy. I just want to be clear that there is a distinction. Learning about something, regardless of the material, isn't the same as the thing itself. Medical doctors aren't people who sit around and read medical literature. They engage in the practice of medicine. But reading the literature would likely make them better at practicing it. It is only when you take a step forward in the direction of the aim of a study that you begin to embody the study itself, and that is when you become a philosopher. My second reason for defining philosophy as thinking as an activity, as I stated above, is how easy it is to get your foot in the door for anyone interested. It is distinct from other areas of study in that anyone can pursue engaging and or grappling with an idea with little or no education. This isn't to say that education serves no purpose for someone interested in philosophy, especially if you receive a formal education in argumentation, but it certainly isn't necessary. There is no shortage of great thinkers in history, many of whom we describe as philosophers, that had no diploma nor degree. Credentials simply aren't mandatory. We are all born with the capacity to think, and engaging in it actively should make you better at it. Practice promotes proficiency. And practicing this can happen anytime and anywhere. You don't need to look at your phone sitting on the toilet. I mean, it's certainly convenient, and no one seems to keep magazines nearby anymore. I I get it. But maybe, just sit there and think about things hanging together in the broadest sense of the term. There is one element missing, however, and it is perhaps the key ingredient in becoming better at thinking. I alluded to it earlier when discussing the meaning of words – and that is one of a requisite mind distinct from your own that you need to negotiate the quality of your ideas with. You'd think that highly social animals that also procreate sexually with a partner wouldn't have such an aversion to discussing ideas with other people. I hit you hard there with the implication that you would need to potentially look uninformed or foolish in front of others by discussing things that make you uncomfortable or that you've never previously considered. You can philosophize on your own, but you cannot get better at it without having others test the metal of your ideas. Human intuitions are famously poor, and conclusions we reach autonomously tend towards being non-sequitur. Plenty of research illustrates this, often in comedic and ridiculous ways. Ideas are not created equal, and there is no reason to believe that they should be. How we discover the quality of any single idea is to expose it to as many minds as possible, having the coalescence of feedback run back across your own, and then negotiate from there. Philosophy is like sex. You can do it alone, but it's better with two or more. Courage is in the absence of fear. It's doing the right thing despite our fears. So get out there, be vulnerable, and get better at thinking by discussing hard and complex things with others. Plus we tend to find vulnerable people attractive. So even if you don't learn anything, maybe at least you'll get laid. The episode you just listened to, Philosophy Defined, is a reading from my website. All of the discourse on my website can be found in their own articles under the Discourse tab. And I will be converting all of them into audio recordings so that they can become podcast episodes and you can listen to them instead of having to read them. For those interested, the discourse on my website pertains much more to philosophy in a formal sense as a legitimate area of inquiry, where I discuss formal logic, thoughts that I will dissect and break down in a litany of ways... And if you're interested in having me dissect any particular idea or any concept, whether it be ancient or modern, please send me an email. You can contact me through my website, submission form, or you can email me directly. My email address is matthew at angulosphilosophy.com. And I would love to hear if there is a particular idea that you would like me to do a deep dive on. In the next episode, Derek will be returning as a guest where he will be attacking me mercilessly, um, or at least that's how I've requested he go about the conversation. Uh, He has a littered history dealing with philosophy that has left a bad taste in his mouth, and I don't think he's alone. Uh, There are not a significant number of worthwhile offerings from the realm of philosophy compared to other realms in my estimation, or if there are, it is my opinion that they aren't as significant or as socially relevant as maybe they could be. And I have a feeling that part of that could be because it's not being done very well. There is a lot of really bad quality philosophy out there, and there is some confusion about the extent to which having a philosophical approach or learning about what philosophy has to offer could be of any value in your life. And uh, I will be making the case to defend that. So it should be fun, and uh, I hope you tune into it. I hope everyone had a good New Year's and uh, has hopefully had better prospects on the horizon for the upcoming year. And I hope that you'll keep listening as the year goes on. That's it for this episode. This is Matt from the Medusa Medicast signing off. Until next time, viciously pursue truth with courage and kindness. Take care of yourselves and one another. Goodbye.